Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, this is a big picture election this midterm. It's not just about the laws and policies and priorities governing our lives, not merely about whether we can control our own bodies or the environment has a future, the possibility of racial justice or whether you can make rent with a full-time job. It's about all of that plus how we're positioned to fight for the system that's supposed to give each of us a say in those decisions. Okay, but here are the elite media headlines. Did Democrats peak too early before the midterm elections? Signs suggest they may have. Will inflation boost Republicans' chances in the midterm elections? With midterms looming, Biden isn't attending big campaign rallies. What's happening here? What's not happening here? Fair always says that news media work in election season should be judged not by how reporters treat Democrats or Republicans, but about how they inform and engage the public, including vast numbers of people who don't even vote because they can't or because they don't see the connection between pulling that lever and their day-to-day life. Is it too much to see it as journalism's job to make those connections and to err on the side of reflecting public needs to politicians rather than presenting politicians as celebrities for people to muse about from a distance? Counterspin talked about midterm election coverage with FAIR editor Jim Narikas and FAIR managing editor Julie Holler. That's coming up on today's show. But first, a quick look back at some recent press. Outlets like the Washington Post are encouraging what that editorial board referred to as a swift and muscular U.S.-led intervention in Haiti. And while other media are now reporting qualms about the wisdom, there's no evidence of challenge to the idea of the U.S. right to go in in ways as yet undetermined. Haiti is not an arena, geographical or ideological, in which U.S. media are inclined to wake their ideas up. And the ease with which reporters reach for old tropes reminded me of a conversation we had with activist Bill Fletcher after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, in which he said, well, this. Well, one of the reasons I think that this is critically important to look at history is that there's the the problem in the absence of history is that people tend to then look at Haiti as a basket case. They look at it as pathetic, as opposed to understanding that Haiti today is a direct result of the uh, policies of the United States and France that go back to when, when Haiti achieved independence from France in 1804. I mean, if you don't get that, if you don't understand that the United States blockaded Haiti until 1862, that the French demanded that the Haitians pay reparations to France, for the loss of the slaves as a result of the Haitian Revolution from the 1820s until 1947, if you don't get that the United States occupied Haiti from 1915 to 1934, 
If you don't get that the United States backed systematically repressive regimes in Haiti, the most notorious being uh, Papa Doc Duvalier, if you don't get that the United States was directly implicated in overthrowing President Aristide in 1991, you can't understand how Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and one of the poorest on the planet. That was Bill Fletcher reminding us of the contested, violent, unresolved life behind that poorest country in the hemisphere, basket case, hellhole language that we can expect to hear tossed around untethered in coming days. As media breezily discuss the best way for others to determine the future of Haiti's people, remember, for example, how Newsweek's Fareed Zakaria described Haiti in 2008 as a place where, quote, the United States has attempted to foster democracy on and off for almost a century with almost no success, close quote. Or New York Times chin stroker David Brooks, who tried to answer the question of why Haiti is so poor with reference to child rearing practices that he claimed often involve neglect in the early years. That piece explained that when it comes to places like Haiti, quote, the programs that really work involve intrusive paternalism, close quote. Or the Washington Post's Anne Applebaum, who started her post-2010 earthquake column on Haiti with a bit about how painful it was for her to look at photographs of devastation. And it wound up, as Amy Wilentz noted at The Nation, faulting Haiti's public institutions for the collapse of buildings, including the presidential palace, which was built by Marines during the U.S. occupation of Haiti from 1915 to 1934. Elite U.S. media love to write stories with headlines like, There is no hope. Crisis pushes Haiti to brink of collapse. As you read those stories, ask yourself who they're listening to and what exactly those people are hoping for. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Independent, challenging, far-ranging, and fearless coverage of elections and the electoral process is one of journalists' core jobs at the best of times. And these are not the best of times. Issues in the upcoming midterm elections go as deep as the election process itself, with some Republican candidates suggesting that they won't accept results that don't go their way. And that's along with the deep and disturbing threats posed by a Republican-controlled Congress. Add to that the fact that the corporate media, source, unfortunately, of some of the most impactful journalism in this country, are themselves throttled by the same kinds of power players that call shots at both political parties, namely profit-driven corporations. Joining us now to talk about Elite Media's midterm election coverage, we have FAIR's editor, Jim Narikas, in studio, and FAIR's managing editor, Julie Holler, joining us by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome, uh, the both of you, back to Counterspin. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Janine. So many questions, so many problems at so many levels. Let's just 
start with the reality that we have Republicans who are off-the-chain nightmarish. They want bad, inhumane things, and they want to use institution-destroying processes to get them. And then we have Democrats who are not just ineffectually countering that, but who are many of them up to the same stuff, beholden to the same status quo supporting, change-squashing actors. Um, so that's the reality. And, and Jim, uh, it, it fits poorly. That reality fits poorly into corporate news media's standard election template, which is Republicans versus Democrats. They're so different. And can't we find a happy medium? Now, I'm not saying that media have never talked about the GOP's anti-democracy or that they've never talked about donor power in both parties. But when it comes to elections, it just seems that they're still mainly using a template that was always inadequate and now seems like completely beside the point. Yeah, I liken it to trying to report on geography without acknowledging that the world is round. You know, if you wanted to to have geography coverage that would not turn off flat earthers. So you, you sort of describe Australia as being on the other side of the world, according to, to some people, um, because you don't want to turn off the part of your audience that, that subscribes to the, the flat earth theory. And we really do have a, a political party that is dominated by a flat earth theory that the 2020 election was stolen, that, that Donald Trump really won, and that the electoral process should be rejiggered so that the people who they believe win elections should be declared the winners of elections and not and not the people who actually get the most votes. And that is, you know, literally the end of democracy to have that political philosophy put into power. And how you have political coverage that treats that party as, you know, one side of a debate, you really can't do it in and be coherent in any way. You're you're misleading the public if you act like that philosophy is compatible with democracy. Um, but that's that's what they're doing. The way that they end up then covering this stuff is always as a bank shot. So I was looking at at some recent coverage in the the Washington Post and the New York Times, and the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago had this headline that was something along the lines of Democrats are shifting to a darker, more apocalyptic midterm message, how the the Democrats are shifting to talk about the dangers to democracy. This is coming off of the Biden speech about the the MAGA threat and everything. And the, the framing of the story is, this is a messaging shift. What are the pros and the cons? What do the strategists think? And it's so detached from the real world implications of it, that it just hurts your brain. I mean, the piece is pretty long and the reporter does spend a paragraph or two acknowledging that most GOP candidates won't commit to accepting election results, that the party is actively attacking abortion rights. But then, you know, the real focus of the story is this really detached strategy, which is what election coverage, FAIR has been covering election coverage for many years. And this is always focused on strategy, focus on the horse race, focus on the messaging. 
and so little focus on the policy implications. And it, and it's always a problem, but it's extra problematic when the implications are the end of democracy. The New York Times yesterday on the front page, they had this, they were reporting on a poll that they just done. And their headline was, most voters say democracy under threat, but few feel urgency. It was like total victim blaming. <laughs> they were reporting on this poll where they asked people about whether they thought democracy was under threat, and most people said yes. But then they also, there was another part of the poll that asked what the top priority was for the election, like a top issue. And more people said something related to the economy, like economy of inflation, things like that, than said democracy. So the Times called people apathetic <laughs> for not putting it as their top priority. But first of all, for a lot of people, the economy right now is, it's more immediately felt, right? You know, the threat to democracy is something that feels a bit more in the future, whereas economic threats feel more immediate. But I think it's also really important that we point out that the media bear no small responsibility for how people prioritize things in elections. You know, what is important? Well, if the media are just telling you, like, well, Democrats say that there's a threat to democracy and Republicans say there's a different kind of threat to democracy from Democrats. You know, it's like this is media completely falling down on their responsibility to give people the information that they need to make informed choices about democracy. Absolutely. Jim? The media are so unwilling to accept responsibility for the fact that their job is to inform the public about the broader trends in society, the things that you can't observe just by talking to your neighbors or, or looking out your front door. You rely on media outlets to, to gather information about what's happening and, and tell you about them. And they are so often distorting the picture of, of reality. I think crime is a great example. You always see stories about the midterm politics saying that Republicans are going to tie Democrats to the high crime rate. Unquestioned assumption there is that there is now a high crime rate. The fact is that crime went down last year, according to FBI statistics. We're not in a crime wave. The crime is ebbing. And historically, crime is at about half the rate that it was in 1991, which I don't think people look back on as a road warrior-like post-apocalyptic landscape. And we're historically, we are seeing relatively low crime rates. But because Republicans would like to tie Democrats to high crime rate, um, that is what the, the media are describing the crime rates being. And once that frame has been put into place, it's very hard to get out of it. And crime is also, it's very clickbaity, right? Especially you get like in the New York City tabloid news, it's just constant crime coverage. It's very easy for them to report on, just like reporting the police blotter. Something that caught my attention a few weeks ago was this prison strike in Alabama, which probably not that many counterspin listeners will have heard about because it got so little coverage in national media. But this prison strike went on for three weeks. It just ended, I think, yesterday, which would be Tuesday, the, the 18th, I believe. Alabama, I mean, when you look into this story, it's just, it's mind-boggling. Alabama was sued by the DOJ, actually under Trump, for having unconstitutionally inhumane conditions in their entire state prison system. The DOJ brought a lawsuit against them because they were not changing. They, they had already been informed that this, was, that this was unconstitutional. They weren't changing it. They were sued. They still haven't done anything. And prisoners actually went on strike 
for three weeks, a work stoppage. They don't get paid to work, but they stopped work for three weeks. There was just virtually no media coverage of this. And I bring this up because Jim's talking about crime. And, and you think about the impact of the criminal justice system on the lives of people in this country. It's immense. And you never hear stories about this. You know, you get a one-off here and there. The, the Times actually reported on the DOJ lawsuit a few years ago. And then, and then you didn't hear from them again until there's a strike. You know, they, they report on it at the beginning of the strike. You don't hear any follow-up on it. And I just try to imagine what kind of midterm coverage we would have in a media system where mass incarceration were treated as a problem anywhere near as urgent as these imaginary crime waves that, that the media are hyping. And think about the kinds of policy conversations that we could have and the kinds of politicians who could actually have a shot at winning. I feel like our democratic possibilities are really constrained by the media narratives, the, the stories that media tell us about ourselves, the people that media talk to to tell us these stories about ourselves. And specifically, you know, when, when we start talking about elections, what kind of policy conversations we can have. Well, that's absolutely what I was moving towards, Julie, because, you know, we have a journalism that says that when it comes to elections, the job is to say what politicians are saying and maybe their strategy for saying it. But the coverage is candidate A versus candidate B. And if they don't mention something well, then we're not going to talk about it, right? Because neither of the big party candidates mentioned it. And I feel like we've come to expect that for election coverage. And as you're just pointing out, it's such a narrow definition of what this opportunity for reporting could look like in terms of what we talk about. And, you know, Matt Gertz from Media Matters was just pointing out that you know, Republicans have this not at all veiled plan to gut Social Security and Medicare if they win Congress. This is something that people care deeply about that affects virtually everyone in the country. This is an important story. But if candidates don't talk about it, then reporters aren't going to talk about it because it didn't come out of a candidate's mouth. And it's such a it's such a narrow understanding of what electoral politics mean and the opportunity for journalism that's offered by elections. There are huge issues that are going undiscussed for the most part in the, the campaign and in the the campaign coverage. Things that affect everybody vitally, but but neither party sees them as as like political winners and therefore they don't get talked about. The COVID pandemic is one such issue. Neither party is making it a big part of their campaign, despite the fact that this is a, an ongoing pandemic that has killed a million Americans, uh, continues to kill Americans, it shows no sign of going away. And there's neither a, a strategy being advanced by the party in power or a, a strategy suggested by the, the opposition party to deal with this. Um, it's just not being talked about. Another issue that is getting weirdly little discussion in the campaign journalism is the Ukraine war, which the United States is, is putting vast resources into this. It's, it's basically a, a proxy war with the other major nuclear superpower on Earth with the possibility of nuclear war being discussed in in kind of bizarrely 
casual terms in uh, the foreign policy opinion press. What are we doing to prevent uh, nuclear war from happening? That's not an issue that either party is is really focusing on. Well, I, I wanted to say that I think listeners understand that there are always issues in play in an election. But at this point, we're not talking about just issues, as life-changing as they may be. We're talking about the process itself. We're talking about whether or not it matters when you go to vote, whether you have some say in how politicians treat your bodily autonomy, whether you have some say in how politicians vote on a possibility of nuclear war or the use of, I think it's now $16 billion or something that the White House has spent on the Ukraine war, whether or not we have a process that allows us to have a say in what's being done in our name, that's what's on the ballot. There's a lot of talk about the the January 6th insurrection. It's important to keep in mind what was going on there. That was an attempt to stop the the House from certifying the 2020 presidential election. Uh, We are now going to be choosing the House of Representatives that will preside over the 2024 presidential election. And the Republican ideology now is that the Republican Party should have blocked the certification of the 2020 election and declared victory for Donald Trump because of a sort of faith-based understanding that that he was the, the rightful president and should have been named so. So that is what we're putting the pieces in place for that to be relitigated in 2024. And that is, I would say, the, the most important thing at stake in the 2022 midterms. And when you think about January 6th, and you think about the way that when we were covering the coverage at the time, there was this sense like, wow, media are finally getting a little bit of a spine. And they're finally starting to call a spade a spade. And they're finally starting to really, you know, call out lies and, and things like that. And I think what you're seeing, definitely seen in recent months, that reverting back to the both sides of them. And I think that really, you know, when Janine, you're asking this question of why you think about what was happening in the Republican Party around January 6th, where there was a real schism and there, you know, a lot of the leadership, you know, the non-Trump leadership was saying, this is not okay. We can't do this. And then the momentum swung back towards Trump. And that suddenly became the mainstream of the party. And once that became the mainstream of the party, then with corporate media's insistence on giving credence to reporting both sides, like the mainstream of the Democratic Party, the mainstream of the Republican Party, when the mainstream of the Republican Party became election denialists, it became virtually impossible for the media to continue to call them out forcefully in the way that they had just begun to do around January 6th. Well, let me ask you about another aspect. There's so many so many things to keep your eyes on, and yet money is always one of them. There was a quote in The Guardian from Chi Sun Lee from the Brennan Center, also, I would note, a long-ago Counterspin co-host. But uh, Lee said that it does seem to be getting worse, that outside spending in this federal midterm cycle is more than double the last midterm cycle. Since Citizens United 
just 12 mega donors, eight of them billionaires, have paid $1 out of every 13 spent in federal elections. And now we're seeing a troubling new trend that some of the mega donors are sponsoring campaigns that attack the fundamentals of democracy itself. There's just a way, uh, you know, for both of you that corporate media are just not going to talk about money and the influence of corporate money and power in elections. It's always like as if suddenly when we're talking about elections, it's the school board and the posters and and marches and, and, you know, ballot boxes. And the idea that donors have power is a story, but it's a separate story. You should always keep in mind when you're especially watching broadcast coverage or TV coverage of the elections that elections are a huge, huge profit center for TV news. The inflow of money to buy round-the-clock propaganda in support of one candidate or, or another, that money is going straight into the coffers of the the corporations that own the TV news programs. And so they have no interest in turning that spigot off. It would be a, a financial disaster for them if there was some way found to keep mega donors from pouring money into the the political process. I would also like to point out that there are independent news outlets that are doing a really great job of digging up some of this information about about the dark money donations, both within the Democratic and the Republican parties. The lever is one of them. That is one of the purposes of independent media. I mean, that should be the purpose of all media, of course, but that's one way in which independent media really do the job that media should be doing of following the money and holding power to account. All right, then. We've been speaking with FAIR Managing Editor Julie Holler and FAIR Editor Jim Narikas. Thank you both for joining us this week on Counterspin. It's been good to talk. Always great to be here. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The website is also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter, Extra. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.